They're cutting out. Can you repeat that? Go for production. Go for production. I said go for production. Production. That's right. You're listening to a podcast about TV and film production. Join us as we converse with industry leaders and gain insight into their strategies, their systems, and best practices in bringing a script to life. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Brendan Riley. Welcome to another episode of Go For Production, where it's my job to deconstruct and demystify the production process in both film and television. We'll talk about strategies, systems, and tools the pros use so you can be inspired to move forward in your filmmaking career. Today's guest is Abraham Martinez. Abe is a director of photography who has traveled across the world to nearly 60 countries. He started out working on many studio feature films in Hollywood within the camera department on movies such as Flight Plan, Spider-Man 3, and Fast and Furious, to name a few. He recently broke ground in television filming two shows back-to-back, Queen of the South and The Shy. Abe has experienced filming internationally and has shot two independent feature films overseas in India and Kenya. While on location in Kenya, along with his wife and two boys, Abraham resourcefully produced a children's show pilot targeting vulnerable children. Working on films has proved more than simply an adventurous career, but has triggered a passion to impact culture and shoot compelling stories along the way. Welcome to the show, Abe. Hello. Great to be here. So um, one question that I like to ask at the beginning is, is just talking about your history, um, getting into filmmaking and, and movies, and just, you know, briefly, like, what, what got you interested in, in doing this for a career, and, and how did you get your start? Well, I think uh, initially, uh, growing up in the 80s, um, as a kid, I used to watch, I used to love, uh, not necessarily the the cartoons, but it was also the stuff in between all the commercials. And I always thought it was fascinating to see all the kids play with the toys, you know, um, uh, with cars and motorcycles and just different types of toys that would play on the commercials. And that always interested me. And I slowly started finding myself making uh, little cartoons, you know, like little, uh, what would be like um, storyboards, um, but essentially cartoons. Um, or comic strips, rather, I'd make five or six boxes and just make a story within each box, uh, drawing. Uh, and then later in middle school, as you know, watching cable television, um, I saw the film The Killing Fields and also El Salvador. And that's, I think, was the kind of the, the turning point for me in seventh or eighth grade, um, where I, I found a discovery into taking photography. Uh, and that's when I knew I wanted to be a war cameraman. And it was during that time in the eighth grade that I started taking uh, black and white photos. And in those days, it was all film. So I would go to school and develop film and process uh, black and white film and take pictures of my friends and have negatives and take them home and just kind of look through the negatives. And When I saw the movie The Killing Fields, there was a, a scene in there where, where two journalists uh, one, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but there's a part where they got to make a passport photo and they're trying to get their friend out of the country as, 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 um, um, as there's you know, turmoil and they're evacuating all the Americans and they try to, to, to make a passport. And there's this part where they're, John Malkovich is developing a, a photograph and, 
to me, that always seemed like a very compelling, exciting, riveting um, uh, job. Um, you know, was, during that time, I wasn't really thinking so much about social justice. But looking back on it, I think um, there was definitely a, a part of that to, to bring awareness of what's going on in the world uh, in terms of injustice. So I think that's kind of was the spark um, for me to get into photography. And then, of course, later in high school, I took a, a radio TV film um, where I was mostly just love shooting with, you know, um, a video camera or uh, and eventually in, I'd go to film school and work with film. Um, but I think that was kind of the, the starting point for me. And you, and you, you know, fast tracking, you're working on these bigger movies as an assistant camera you know, how did you make that transition from being an AC to a director of photography? My introduction into working in the business was in, during college. Uh, my junior, I went to the University of North Texas, uh, where I studied film. And my junior year, I started taking, volunteering for cable access. It was Dallas Cable Access. And in those days, think of it as like a YouTube. Um, there was no internet, no YouTube. Uh, and it was a place where they had studio pedestal cameras in, in like three studios in downtown Dallas. And you can go there and volunteer. And basically a producer or director would come up with a show concept. And then you shoot. It's basically like having, um, you know, it's activism. There's uh, arts and entertainment. And everybody produces their own show. Uh, so I would I volunteered there as a cameraman. And that was kind of, it was not for credit. It was just in my own time between working uh, a part-time job and going to college full-time uh, commuting to Denton, Texas. Um, and that's, that's where I started. And the, guy, the gentleman who ran that program uh, worked there. Um, he was also Latino. It was the first time where I actually met a real filmmaker that actually worked with film and he had a hand-drawn picture that he drew of an Airflex camera on a desk. And I remember pointing to him like, oh, that's Airflex, that's 16 millimeter. And he, he was surprised that I knew and he invited me to a shoot that he was doing that he was personally financing. And when I showed up on set, uh, just by me mentioning the camera, there was no websites or internet sites. In those days, it was all literature so or magazines. Um, and then he immediately put me with the DP there was no camera assistant. My friend loaded the film and I basically had a three turret camera on the RES and I was trying a flashlight for the DP and I would change the iris and he gave me points to pull focus. And so basically my first time ever on set um, was right on the camera. But I, you know, that was my first time on a professionals, you know, working with professionals. Um, but it, it's been a long journey from there. That same director recommended me to PA on a commercial. It was my first PA job ever and my only PA job. Uh, I had made a business card. You know, there's like no websites, no Instagram, nothing, mind you. But I, my brother worked at a print shop and I made uh, business cards that said production assistant. And I wrote my name and I was into graffiti and it was all done in graffiti. Or maybe that one was a bit more conservative. <laughs> this is Texas. <laughs> my, uh, and I, I worked the commercial and the way you did things back then is um, you had a map of the city and you brought a, a telephone book um, and quarters because you didn't have cell phones. So you would, you would actually have to go be a runner or a gopher as a PA and you would have to figure out how to get something. 
and you would go to your car, open the telephone book and find, you know, let's say vacuum bags. You got to get vacuum bags for art department. Then you look up the nearest place, look on the map and you, <laughs> it was like, it was kind of like a, you're, you're inside of your car in Texas, hot Texas, like a, a little, like, like you're planning a, um, a battlefield or something. And I, I, I immediately knew I wanted to be in the camera department. And as we we're wrapping out, uh, it was a non-union commercial. I think most of the jobs were non-union. And I remember the grip that worked at the rental house would have to put the, the gear in the truck, but nobody was helping him. And I remember grabbing the C stands and the sandbags and taking it to the truck to help him wrap out. Um, you know, I wasn't doing anything with walkies or any of that, that business. Uh, so I helped him out. And at the end of the day, I remember this clear as day, I gave him my business card. I said, Hey, if you ever need any help, uh, let me know. And here's my business card. And I, and I gave it, I gave it to him and uh, Jerry Patton and over at MPS mobile production studios in Dallas, which was uh, a place that, had a, a little studio and rented Airflex cameras, 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter. And the very next day I got a call from MPS asking me if I wanted to come. Uh, they lost their driver, van driver, who used to do deliveries and studio equipment around the studio. And immediately I jumped out of bed, went to MPS and I was hired as their van driver. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a very, it's a very long path. Um, but ultimately, eventually, um, Mark Beasley, Joe Loomis, Brad Beasley, the Beasley brothers and MPS, uh, my junior year, uh, the summer before my junior year, I was a van driver. I told them I was having to go to school and they ended up promoting me to the camera department as a prep tech and where I worked Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And I did all my school. I jam packed them on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I'm sorry, that was before my senior, the summer before my senior year. Uh, and then my senior year, I was already uh, a full a professional in the business working as a prep tech, working with professional people coming in. Um, even like somebody like Gary J was a camera operator on heat. Um, and he worked on all these Michael Mann movies. He was an AC at that time, but eventually started operating. Um, other guys worked on Oliver Stone films. So I was already meeting professionals and, on the weekends, sometimes I'll go out and load film as a senior in film school. Uh, so I had no need to take any production classes my senior year at North Texas, which I saved a lot of money. Um, and then from there, I just took world cinema classes. And I think that's kind of really where my worldview really opened up, uh, being someone who grew up in Texas, um, who was exposed to international cinema. Uh, what, what year was this for you when you were in film school? 1995-96. Uh, was when I was my senior year. And then um, I also did work on this movie called Space Marines, <laughs> which was uh, working in the art department. Um, but that was 1994. That's my very first movie on Space Marines. The benefit to film school is a little bit different back then than it is now in the terms of, you know, now at, you, you can watch so many films, you know, from Amazon or Netflix or HBO. But back then, we, you know, the film school was an avenue for people to show a class, a film from the forties or whenever um, from, from France, you know, and get and try to shape a, a viewpoint that was not always easy to access. Right. So that's yes. Yes. And I, I feel that's exactly right. I think that's where I had the exposure to French, you know, I think film school, you know, I think, 
even that even the textbooks i mean you're going to learn about uh the french new wave and neorealism and expressionism uh and the birth of cinema uh those were guaranteed and 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 i think that the world cinema classes were a little bit more niche and with not necessarily your you know the time the, the, the foreign films that were exposed to me growing up were basically kung fu movies uh that would play on the weekends i think saturday afternoons is, was the time to watch and i think that's kind of other than being latino and having novelas or mexican you know programming on in my grandmother's house uh that 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 was kind of the introduction for me to see a different type of cinema and i i think even in middle school my when i eventually you know in middle school i was in houston when i started watching uh, the killing fields and my 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 street was very multicultured so even then going into my friends homes i saw korean uh stuff you know korean content and filipino and one of my good friends down the way was jamaican um so my mom remarried in left san antonio which was all a latino neighborhood and that's where i saw novellas so i i feel um you know looking back that that was kind of um almost in preparation for me to expand my my world view um in terms of content and what you're consuming and having relationships with people on the block um it's a, a area of uh, a leaf in houston but yes there there wasn't very much it wasn't easy to watch uh foreign cinema and that that didn't have uh you know weren't wasn't exaggerated such as kung fu um but there was video, you know at, at, at eventually it was a gateway to go to certain you know hip uh vhs video rental stores where you can rent rent these movies and start exploring on your own and pause and rewind and watch uh but most of everything my intake was at uh film school um and then from there um now i th- i feel just to just to kind of button it up a little bit i feel like we're we're at a, another again crossroads where i feel netflix and amazon mostly netflix is overreaching and making content in other countries where you can watch television shows uh right here at home i can watch a uh, uh, queen sonos uh on netflix I can watch uh African cinema, I can watch Indian cinema a lot easier now on Netflix. And I I feel like that's also going to help the times so just for people to expand the world view to read subtitles and sometimes it's dubbed. Uh most certainly we've watched a lot of British shows uh in English and uh European uh shows are also here from Denmark. Um so I I'm very excited where we're headed. uh might be less opportunity as filmmakers to travel abroad as as the experience level seems to be getting better and better each year um you read my bio i eventually sold my house we'll get there i'm sure and move to kenya um and they're just really doing amazing work a lot of people who were just getting into the business now are now directors and having their own production companies back in 2010 um but I'm really excited what's happening right now to make things accessible for overseas but from from beyond that I, you know I I continued my working as a as a prep tech I moved to New York my wife went to FIT and that's 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 where things started to really change for me to getting into the business and to the union 
it was a, a launch pad for me to move to Los Angeles after New York. But I finished film school, moved to New York, lived in Chelsea, and worked at a rental house uh, at Cinema Vision in New York, which was also FNBC Co. prior to me getting there. And so then you're, you're working on these big studio movies, and, and, and today you're, you're working on these TV shows, Queen of the South, The Shy. Um, what was that transition like, though, to, to go from you know, being a first AC and then now you're a DP on a big TV show? Well, I, you know, I think I have to go back even again at that rental house. I, I met, ended up meeting the, 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 really the turning point was when I met Ralph Boda, ASC, who shot Saturday Night Fever, called Monitor's Daughter, Dressed to Kill. Uh, you know, he worked with uh, De Palma. Uh, so I was in New York and my wife got promoted um, from New York to LA. And I was all geared up to take the union test back east. Uh, I think it was with Mark Hirschfeld. Um, 1997, 1998, I can't, I think 1998, uh, I was going to go freelance and take the test and just make roots in New York. Um, but then my wife got moved to LA and I moved to LA and then I ended up, uh, calling Ralph Boda and his son, Paul Boda, and they were doing an independent movie, non-union. And, uh, he was doing a favor for a writer's friend who wrote for Disney on a Disney project that they shot. Uh, and it was a personal film and that film ended up going union. And that's where the, the spark of mentorship, the spark of working as a professional camera department happened. Uh, on that movie in 1998, uh, maybe early 99, um, um, is where I had a relationship with a DP, the camera operator, the AC, the second AC, and I was the film loader. And I had a woman, uh, second AC, train me who also worked with Darius Kanji and Conrad Hall. Uh, and of course, you know, Paul Boda, Ralph Boda was, was already, in my view at that time, even a legend. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I started the gateway to working on studio films. And from there, I ended up working a few more pictures with Ralph Boda and Paul Boda and where I met Mike Stone, Billy Clevenger, um, and were operators. Um, and then I worked my first studio film on, on Michael Mann's Ali. And that's kind of the intersection for digital. In 2000, it was the intersection for digital movie making, which is a very much only four scenes four or five scenes that we did. Most of it was film. I loaded about almost 2 million feet of film um, on a Michael Mann movie. And then from there, uh, it was in those days, it was very exclusive. You only worked on fit movies. You only worked on TV, music videos, and commercials. So the films, there was pretty, pretty much, you know, there was some overlap, but mostly just worked on movies. And from there, I just did movie after movie as a film loader. And then, um, then I keyed. Uh, Spider-Man 3, the second AC, and then by that time, 2006, digital was starting to gain traction, and I started shooting digital, um, and I, you know, it's a, a lot happened with those years personally, um, but that was kind of the turning point when digital came onto the scene, because I first started shooting a roll of film, and it cost a lot of money to develop and transfer, so once, once filmmaking became in your hands with the 5D or even the red, it became much easier to bump up, but bumping yourself up and looking for independent projects to shoot. So it was a very tough time in 2007, 2008, 2009, where I was assisting and shooting at the same time. So it was like having a dual life. I would be 
<laughs> working on, on Fast and Furious as a second AC on the B camera, main unit. I mostly work main unit. And then maybe on the weekends, I would go shoot a project on digital. So it was very blurry. But I think that's the way my career has been uh, in this business. And a lot of people who I work with, I call ourselves the hybrid generation where I went to film school and literally, or even learning typing in, you know, middle school or element, you know, middle school learning how to type on a typewriter and then, then an Apple computer and editing on tape or film cutting. And then also um, learning on how to edit on, on Apple. So every step of the way, have no cell phone, have a pager, have right. a phone. So everything, I witnessed this transition, right? I mentioned earlier about the telephone book and then now, of course, phones. So um, the same thing happened literally on professionally. I'm the last generation, literally the last professional film generation where I worked exclusively with film, many, many films. Um, you know, nowadays, sure, people can load a film and work on one film, but that in those days was 100% film. There was right. no digital. Um, so as that transition started taking place, I just jumped at the moment, uh, put down all my movie credits on the resume, and I just started to find projects that I really was passionate about. Um, and a lot of it, you know, ultimately been in social justice. And I started traveling uh, in 2000. I went on my first overseas trip to Borneo and Kenya and Mozambique on Ali. And that's kind of where I started really wanting to shoot overseas, just <laughs> like I was on the killing field. I had this idea uh, to make a kids show with my wife and kids to move to Kenya. And, and that was, we gave ourselves 2010, 26, 2007, I wanted to start shooting. And that's when Panavision supported me and would give, get me camera packages and started, started kicking in. And I started going to dailies, watching dailies on, on set. Uh, it, it's really a whole transition, really. I mean, back then we had dailies on DVD for TV shows. And uh, then we had trailers. Or if you're on the lot, you would go to a theater screen and watch dailies. Uh, most people, you know, with being in the camera department, you're always invited to watch dailies. So I really started, even on Spider-Man 3, I went to the dailies every day. Uh, and when my last film job was Django Unchained. Uh, I was the assistant of, for Quentin, and he still had film dailies. So that was, uh, I was already operating at that time, shooting independent movies and a very unique experience. So that was kind of my inter blurry intersection with the second, the first the operator. Uh, it was very blurry because of digital. Um, but making that leap, I was able to have a dual life of learning on film and <laughs> shooting digital. Right. And, and then eventually in 2011, I got uh, Emerging Cinematographer honor. I was honored with a ECA, Emerging Cinematographer. It's our guild, our, our Cinematographers Guild. And I was honored uh, with a group of 10 or eight guys, um, or, or uh, men and women, rather, um, to tomorrow's DPs, uh, a place where they, you offer recognition within your guild. Um, and that's kind of like where everything's just really started changing. And the movie that you mentioned earlier, I shot, I shot another, that movie in India, again, uh, picked up a Lionsgate. So a lot happened um, during that time, that little window. Um, but yes, but I worked my way up uh, in the department, um, just slowly as digital was taking its course. Uh, a lot of first ACs were, were pulling focus uh, with monitors and the landscape was changing. Um, I started um, 
you know, went from ground zero, really working on Ali in 2000, working with digital, uh, which he later shot with the Viper. Um, and, and then even me, I shot an independent uh, short film with Michael Cioni with the Viper, um, the, the one who spearheaded and um, birthed um, uh, LiDAR, which is a digital um, uh, color house, post house. Um, but it was a very, it's, it's, it's still all very exciting, um, you know, with the tools that have changed. But yes, uh, now I'm cinematographer. I sh I'm on location as we do this interview. I'm on, I'm talk about keeping with Disney and <laughs> my first project uh, with a lot of people from Disney. I'm here on Queen Queen in the South, um, on waiting to go back to work as we're shut down for COVID. One thing that you you talked about was this idea of these relationships you've built over the years and how they've been instrumental to getting you to the point where you are now. Um, what's your view on mentorship in the film industry and how do you go about that in your own personal life? Well, I, I think early on, I was very blessed. Um, you know, working in the time that I did, there was not a, you know, even at the rental house, there wasn't any way to like IMDB somebody before they got there to prep a camera package. Uh, so the, the relationships were a lot about discovering who they are and what they like technically. Um, that's even today, I'm, I'm still like, I'll look up somebody on IMDb. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't know they worked on that, um, uh, that I work with. Or, you know, I guess you would watch credits, film credits. That's about as close as you can get to knowing, but there's no way to remember that. Um, so relationship from the very beginning it was a lot less fanfare. It, it was like, you're, you're going to work, you know, somebody walked from Brooklyn to go to the rental house, you know, with their kit. Um, and they're tired and, you know, you offer them water and it, it's, uh, it was like, you know, that's kind of the starting place was. And, and there was no way for me to learn at home on the internet. Um, you know, I, I would go gather all the uh, booklets, how to learn, you know, from the camera cases and, we always had uh, manuals in, the, in there and I'll take them home and study or sit back with the lens guy in the back at, at lunch break and talk about lenses. Uh, so everything was all about relationship based. There was, there was, there was either you're reading the books, which does, I'm very hands-on. Most camera people are very, very hands-on. So I think that's kind of where I started really learning the value of relationships uh, with you know, sitting lenses back to the lens guy um and it was very much uh guido you know my friend who was back there i said take you know somebody rent the lenses i take it back to him and he would talk to me how to hold the lens um where you know i was holding it super gentle and just kind of very you know very fearful not to drop it which is rightly so um but he said you know you really have to take command of that lens you know don't let it you know, take your focus away of other things. And, and he just showed me really how to even hold a lens, something very fundamental, but very essential in, in the way you hand things off. So it, it really was like a wax on wax off type of situation, but it was really very much a, an apprenticeship style of, of, of a master class, you know, uh, where you're learning and they're teaching you how to load film. And it was very much a step-by-step -step process mechanically. Um, so from there, you know, it just kept going upward. Um, you, I was trained on my first film um, to, to really keep your relationship solid. I, I was told not to piss off transportation as a film loader because they would park <laughs> my truck 
very far away and carrying two thousand foot mags, you know, they're heavy and you have to walk the set. And then from there, I, I think it was a slow, you know, you're talking about 20, 22 years I've been in, in the union. Um, so it was always the person who was one step ahead of you. You never really overreached. Um, you know, there's a lot of film students immediately come out their DP, but, it, but, uh, the, the real process, uh, going into the guild is, uh, the, the, when I mean process, of course you can enter the guild as a DP, but the real process is really just going from utility nowadays, utility or DIT, uh, second AC. It's a very much a classical training. Um, and I was always in great hands with people that worked on amazingly big movies. And at every, st when you're the second, then you start having a mentorship with the first and then the first with the operator. But most of most of my operators were always very, very much, you know, I was in the photography. I took stills and film a lot, even when I was in the department. Could not shoot on set those days. <laughs> you couldn't shoot really on set, so I really adhered to that. So I have all these movies I worked on that I have no stills from, very minimal. Um, and you know, I think on Ali I shot quite a few pictures, uh, but they're in storage back home in L.A. Um, but, I, I, you know, from the very beginning, it was Ralph Boda and Michael Stone. I think those were the first grandiose mentorships when I'm hearing stories about Saturday Night Fever and uh, where they wanted to promote me, where they were thoughtful of me uh, to bring me on their movies. Um, Mike Stone was an operator starting to shoot at that time, he, who, soon, who later passed away. But he was an operator on The Warriors. I mean, that's back in the eighties, uh, in New York, uh, he came out of New York and he's worked, if you look him up, he's worked on a ton of big movies and, um, we would have breakfast, you know, I'd bring him into day play and to shoot and we would have breakfast together and we just talk about life and what it was like to, to be a father in the business and to care for your family. Um, so it really fanned out beyond technical, uh, mentorship. And that's kind of where I do now is where, where there's somebody that, that has maybe some common ground that wants to have a family. I live full time on the road, basically, um, with my wife and kids. And that, that spills over into the mentorship. So I feel like you, when I say common ground, I, you know, I think a woman AC can meet another woman AC that has a very similar, you know, uh, pathway. And for me, um, it's been very much, uh, a very, a very productive, um, inspiring thing for me to have these relationships that I still have intact. Just the other day, I was talking to Michael Endler, who worked on all these, uh, um, you know, he worked on uh, Deja Vu, Tony Scott, and he's worked on all, so many of these movies. And we're still talking about what it means to, what's it going to look like working in the COVID world? and What can we do? You know, there's a lot of wisdom to be uh, gleaned. Um, but it's, you know, but, but again, like uh, the transition, you know, these master classes, when I first got into the union and submitted my paperwork uh, off to the right, they had all these VHS tapes of all these people that worked in the seventies and fifties and forties of interviews of different cameramen operators first seconds. And you would go along the list and you see like you would check out maybe six tapes, VHS tapes back in 99, um, right there in Los Angeles at our, at our headquarters. And you could take these VHS tapes, take them home and watch these interviews. There was no YouTube. And I think that was kind of like 
when I first, you know, I got like John Alonzo. <laughs> John, I don't know if you know, John Alonzo shot Scarface um, in uh, Chinatown and he was a Latino and I was from Dallas and Latino and um, in Scarface, I love Scarface. I mean, come on, I'm shooting Queen of the South. It's a, it's a cartel, <laughs> it's a gangster show. Um, so even in 99, I, I got that tape and I just put it in and, you know, I always regret not calling them up and just driving to their house and just kind of sitting back and hearing these stories. Right. And, and living in, in Hollywood, you know, down at Priscilla's coffee shop, there was an AC who worked on all these old Westerns back in the sixties and seventies. And he's still there. As far as I know, um, he would be there in the morning and I would sit and talk with him, you know, at Priscilla's. Um, and talk about the days, what it was like for him to be an assistant. So I think there's many different um, ways of seeing uh, um, what's interest and what challenges you may have. Do you have any strategies or systems you put in place that help you with this mentorship or is it more organic? I think it's more organic. There's been some people um, either read an article about me in a magazine or they reach out to me. I had somebody reach out to me who saw me do a television interview in Kenya. Right now, I'm really focused on uh, trying to get more cam uh, women camera operators in the business. So places like Chicago and New Orleans, there's very few women uh, women uh, camera operators. So I'm kind of focused on that a little bit, cross training, you know, my women grips um, into learning the aesthetic and, and the technique and different uh, moments. So whether it be at lunch, we just leave the camera up and we talk about it and talk about process so that's really just watching the times and breaking new ground and i think that is kind of a stewardship of someone who's like me who who who's a hybrid generation person that has to bridge the gap uh to the future of storytelling uh is a responsibility but it's definitely um something i think that is needed in, in the storytelling process to empower more voices uh to tell stories their way and I feel like that's something that I can contribute to uh, now being a DP into um, both technical and, and in process into storytelling. On your day-to-day -day operation, when, when you're approaching a show like Queen of the South, what, what's your typical approach for pre-production um, in terms of, do you have a certain process that you like to use um, that you repeat or things that you, you like to do and bring to the table? Well, on television and, and movies, there, there are two different types of processes for me. Um, I will do TV since this is where I'm at now, um, working from show to show. Um, I try to maintain some consistency uh, in the process. So if it's a show, you know, we're on our fifth season now, Queen of the South. So a lot of that's been the trajectory of, of our lead and main character, Teresa Mendoza. So we have a certain look that we try to adhere. So a lot of it's, as a cinematographer, I'm trying to translate the uh, vision of the, of the incoming directors, which every episode has a director um, that may be different. Sometimes they shoot in blocks, do two in a row. So my process is for the season is to look at the outline and kind of see where we're headed with the, with the, with the storyline. And from there, just kind of build a transition. That's very much how, how um, the character is going to go through this journey. So I try to set up either a set of rules or color, space, uh, or tone to build to and from 
uh, to get us to where we want to be at the end of the season. Um, you know, it may be subtle, um, but it's there. Um, so I, I build out with the team. So there's many levels of the process. There's one for the entire season and then per episode. And I really let the scripts, the visual grammar of the episode. And then I have uh, working alongside the director, we both build um, the episode. So it's half, uh, it's part technical. Uh, we're getting the gear ready for the episode and what we're doing and how we're setting up that specific episode and a lot of its process and what to look, look at because many writers write differently. Um, our showrunners are, we have two showrunners and the way they write and it's to decipher, you know, what to look for on the script, what visual themes, what metaphors and to see the style of writing that we have for that episode and try to try to ha add texture with that and color tone. Um, you know, we, our show takes place in many different cities. We're in Mexico, we're in New York, uh, Miami. So there's the, you know, we shoot everything in New Orleans. One part of the episode will go to either a different city or a different country. Um, so I try to build those visual contrasts. Um, so I take the script, I break it down to technical and creative and I go from there. So it can be anything, uh, this building contrast, um, whether it be color or talk with a production designer. Um, it can be anywhere from talking about window treatment or lamps, uh, or street, um, building a street to look like Mexico. Um, it's a lot of dialogue, uh, takes place very, very challenging going from episode, you really have no time uh, to really, you know, shoot every episode. So there's really hardly any prep time. So mostly I, I carve out five hours on Sunday uh, to break the script. So it takes me five hours. And before I shoot the start day, I, I read the sides. Uh, every morning, it's very much like a ritual. I make a coffee. I read the sides and it usually takes me about 45 minutes to read the sides. <laughs> I really go slowly through it. And by that time I have diagrams with, um, with the set uh, floor plans. So by the time I get there, it's time to play. Uh, a lot of thought have already gone into it. Um, and then even from there, hopefully I can get in a workout. And then I still like to show up on, you know, even as an assistant, I still like to show up 45 minutes to an hour early uh, just to make sure the trucks get placed right and sit there with transpo and make sure everything is, uh, that our sight lines are clear. Um, that's, that's usually I try always not to break those habits. I try to always hold myself to those to be consistent. Um, Sunday, five hours, 45 minutes, 30, 30 to 45 minutes on reading sides and planning for the day. Um, and then, um, really just collaborating the rest of the time with the director and camera operators. And before you start shooting, you know, when you're working with the director or the first AD, um, what, what type of prep do you like to do in terms of shot listing or storyboards, um, in terms of, you're, you're moving so fast with TV, you obviously can't shot list everything or storyboard everything, but what do you attempt to do in that regard? Every director that comes in has a different process. And I feel like, you know, even as a crew person, um, I, I really uh, give advice to crew members and producers to um, 
to reserve judgment on the variety of directors because some directors work with the shot list and some don't. And not everybody has the same process. Um, a lot of things change. The, the room changes of, uh, that may, the couch is on one side better for the light. So you really have to be malleable. Um, so it depends on the director. We work with a lot of the same directors, so I'm kind of ready for that. Um, and also we have a lot of first time directors that come in, um, that I'm also there to help, um, as much as they want the help in, in, in what is needed for the prep or during production. Uh, of course they have the ADs to help along too. Um, but some directors give me a shot list and I just put it right there on my DP monitors and we just really shoot and we fine tune it or make it most of the time try to, to make it um, um, enhance uh, the shot, make it more layered uh, or combine the shots, you know, whether laying dance floor or track uh, to save time. So uh, the, the time element and also a um, um, creative and those are the, basically the two conduits that, that we move forward you know, as, as a DP, you're often faced with a lot of pressure to move faster, right? <laughs> so yeah. uh, how do you um, handle th that stress or uh, a scenario where you, you, the sun's going down and you've got a lot to shoot? Is there any type of strategy that you try to implement when things are going crazy? Well, most of the time, I just assume that during that day's work, uh, you know, I set a, a, a goal of a time of where I want to be. So it, it's all, it's all compounding as you do each setup. Cause a lot of times the choices that you make early in the day are going to affect the back end. So if you know, you're going to need light at the end of the day. So you have to have these very clear and concise choices in the beginning of the day and, and be sure to communicate that to director and your AD. Um, you know, if we go for this extra reverse wide master, you know, uh, that's going to compromise more time in the back end. And, and if the scene is hyper emotional and it's a sunset and we're standing on the roof or you know, near a bridge or mountain where it's going to get shadow, I think all that stuff can be anticipated. So you, you do your best what you can during the prep. Um, but as you're moving along, you're constantly chipping away at that. So I just always assume that we're going to run out of time, but I try always enough I try to prepare enough to give, make sure that what is reasonable is you can look at the schedule and you can, you can say, okay, two, two hours in this scene is plenty and it's respectful for the actors. Uh, you know, you don't want, you don't want to rush to these scenes with the actors just to exhaust themselves. So I'm very hypersensitive with that is to protect the space for the director and the actors to work and a place to work from. But I have to be, um, sometimes you really talk to your AD and, be quite honest, uh, uh, the reality check that we need for the, the day's schedule. So, um, and then on the back end, whether it's technical lighting, there's other things you can do to prepare for it, but there's a very clear end in sight, whether it be a 12 hour day that we have to finish or the sun is going down. So I just always know that that's the case and work accordingly. But it's very much about communication as well. I think sometimes, you know, all the pressure per time can fall on the AD. So it's, 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 there's a value when somebody like yourself as a DP or a director also feels that pressure and is cognizant of, hey, we only have two hours left in the day. Let's, you know, let's all think about this, you know. Um, yeah, I think recently, you know, with, with the AD staff, um, 
there's a moment where I sit down with AD and, and um, try to figure out how long with the director, how long they think every scene is going to be. So we kind of go through that timeline and, um, you know, to take it very serious, there's some sort of way you can measure that, you know, we're 30 minutes behind and where are we going to make up for it? So there's a lot of value in just carving out, you know, 15 minutes with the director and the AD to kind of go over your timeline for every episode. Um, it's not fun. Uh, it's a reality check, but it's a very essential one because if you're allowing yourself to adhere to those timelines, you're able to be creative in those little windows uh, beforehand. So I really value that is where, you know, when the math is really speaking, it's also allowing you to be creative and have freedom as well within that window. Yeah, because if you're able to save five minutes here and there across the day, that can add up to an extra couple of shots, you know, Correct. that, that, Correct. You, that could make the, the show better, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And everybody, everybody's on the same page with that. There's not some, there's no one's going to disagree with coming up with a plan, uh, you know, using numbers. You know, I think numbers may not speak so much for the creative person in some areas, um, but certainly as a cinematographer, uh, the studio or the network is, is going to value that as well. So right out of the gate, when you get that first shot, uh, it's definitely, um, you want to be consistent. You want to be very consistent the best you can uh, to pop off that first shot, uh, allowing your actor. So everyone knows, you know, when you're, when you're starting your day that we're ready to shoot. Uh, everybody must be ready. Uh, it's when you're not consistent and there's this kind of elastic uh, inconsistency of your process uh it's you know one day back and forth you know sometimes location there's problems and but usually when there's problems everybody knows about it so um but if you can get into a rhythm and and stay kind of on point and have this consistency you're gonna have a measurably better planned out season um in those five minutes is three you know five ten fifteen minutes add up I want to kind of switch gears as, as we're wrapping things up and, and just talk about um, some things that you, you do in your personal life. Um, are there any books that have helped you um, over the years to, to maybe inspire you or to educate you in, in what you do today? Most of, as a cinematographer, most of, you know, I spent 15, I mean, it's never not technical as a cinematographer. But as an assistant coming up all the way from since 1995, uh, you know, there's a lot of technical reading. A lot, as I said before, the manuals, um, and you have to lug those around in your car. Um, so for me now, nowadays, as a cinematographer, I'm playing catch up, you know, with the COVID. Uh, you know, I've been working since really steadily, really, since 95, 96, um, almost every week. Uh, with the exception of going on vacation, maybe a, a week or two when I was in AC. But I've been pretty much working consistently, either day playing in Hollywood. Um, so I'm just now catching up on The Sopranos. Uh, I'm catching up on all these uh, shows that I haven't seen um, in a long time. So for me as a cinematographer, uh, uh, I'm trying to catch up on a lot of things that I missed um, the COVID times, but what I'm doing now, presently, it's, it's mostly with art. I go to museums. Uh, I live, as I said before, I live on the road. Just before this season of Queen, I was on the road for three years, bouncing between movies and TV shows, living on the road, Airbnb. So I really can't travel with books. 
Um, but I do spend a lot of time in museums. Uh, so in Chicago, the Chicago the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, immediately when I land in the prep process, when I start a show, uh, I start going to the museums and I try to see what local artists are around. Uh, I try to see influences who have very much common ground. Charles White was a very much an influence for me uh, in Chicago um, and museums here in New Orleans. I try to see what local painters, how they see green, how they see colors. And I just go back and forth to those museums because I live here for five to six months on a show. And I just go back to that museum over and over again because eventually start noticing that you start to change and how you see the city. And there's many layers that you really have to, to um, really shape to peel away to see the city uh, for the good parts and the bad parts and it's also the the parts that are injustice about it and, you know um, thankfully on the shy we uncovered uh, in our show a lot about uh, what it was like to live in the south side with the gun shooting and um, just the systematic uh, the way the government set up with 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 the court system and and you know the prison system and even our show with me south uh, touches that a little bit about the prison system and the imbalance there and the injustice. So for me, it's also just a, being an explorer. That's what a filmmaker is, is being an explorer. And that's what I tell my kids all the time is that, uh, you know, we're not looking for new lands anymore. We're, we're looking, uh, you know, not for that prosperity, but we're looking into the hearts of others and, and, and sharing culture and celebrating culture. I don't think by any means you want to see the world uh, colorist. It was a very diverse crew, the Somalians, Sudanese, uh, many different tribes in Kenya. But, you know, for the most part, everybody uh, had different skin tones. And I got, I was privileged to, to shoot and to see that. And I think that was the biggest takeaway for me working in Kenya is to really to see diversity within, you know, within that. And I think that's very rare. And I think in America, that's that's the beauty of America is that there's many different shades and different colors. And I think that's something that I that I'm seeking to honor and portray and and to celebrate. And that and that that's exciting for me. Very cool. Um, do you have any gadgets, technology, or apps that you like to use on a day to day basis on a film set? Well, most definitely, we use the SunPath app. Uh, for every location um, when we're doing the tech scout or even when we start the season uh, we're kind of looking for 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 properties that are best suited for production um, there's more apps coming out now with covid um, that it seems like I, I i don't think all the apps have been invented yet quite honestly i just did a shoot during covid where we had the zoom connected next to the lens and the director was uh, it was a commercial and she was directing right next to the camera. So wherever the camera moved is where, where we were on Zoom and agency was in a breakout room. But right now, there, there might be some apps that come forward where it's, you're a little bit more remotely uh, working uh, to, for travel. So that's been something we use lately uh, with Zoom on a commercial. Um, uh, the Artemis, the viewfinder uh, is another one. Um, but for me, I'm also a street photographer. I, I take pictures, I have a point and shoot camera. So I use uh, my point and shoot camera um, very much how I did in the eighth grade, uh, shooting black and white. Um, so I train 
Um, that's always with me, by the way. I always wear my my Fuji camera um, uh, with me in, in, everywhere I go, um, whether COVID or not, uh, everywhere I go. So right. it's not even an app. That's like a digital camera, but that's something that I can import. And in there, I have Lightroom. And in Lightroom, whether I'm on set, I can uh, color grade and send samples out to you know have a record of how I want the the, uh, the movie to look. Right. So I, I color with Lightroom and then even a stronger system in my iPad. Um, but I'm starting to switch over, you know, as I said before, when I first started in the business, it's going to be very much, uh, I can see in 20 years from now, you're going to be like, you worked on film, then digital. And then they're also going to say, you worked with paper. And then I can't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> even my kids are like, look, daddy, it's paper. Um, I use the one that is kind of a game changer for me is, uh, is I'm starting to make this transition. Uh, I still use print out my scripts, but uh, now I'm starting to use scriptation. Right. Uh, and then I also use Notability when I start getting towards production because I can I can play with more and also have Procreate. Um, so right now I'm moving into a full digital, but I still have to print that up. Um, and I also have notes. Uh, scriptation has been a game changer for me because I used to have to write all my notes and scene numbers separate because the scripts kept changing. Now with scriptation, I can have all my notes transfer. So as of now, I'm still not happy with the apps that are out there. Um, I need, uh, I do things in diagrams and, and shorthand uh, notes. Uh, so it gets very busy on scriptation and on the script. So that's why I still print out because I still, every morning as I'm doing those, that 30 to 45 minutes breakdown, um, I break the script down on the hard paper and then I take it with me to set. But I'm trying to do have it just do an iPad, everything on iPad, but I'm not quite there yet. There's been only maybe I would say maybe one or two directors on set with their iPads full time right now, presently. Maybe one that's 100% full time with her iPad. Uh, I haven't gotten there yet because I leave everything everywhere. My, my camera, my <laughs> iPad, my phone. So it's very, very difficult for me. But And, and everybody knows which script is mine because I, I, I even color the script for every episode <laughs> on the cover. I have the little things for myself that I paint. Now, do you use the, the Q-Take system for Video Village yet? I'm moving over to where we're going to have a big t TV, like a sports bar um, television, and that's going to be common for the crew. And then we're going to have these dividers, I think uh, wel welding shields in the Video Village that kind of separate, partition everybody. Um, but I think we're going to find uh, ourselves having a very much a remote system set up where you can just have the director, you know, talk via remotely from Video Village onto an iPad to the to the director. So it doesn't sound fun, uh, but I think just to get us through work uh, and keep the actors safe and keep the amount of busyness on the set, I think we're going to be able to bend these apps to work for us uh, to to work even more remotely. You know, there's a lot going on. You know, I'm adding doors to sets that we didn't have doors on previously. And just to control the ins and outs of every set. Uh, we're pulling walls um, when we're working just to let more airflow. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see how these apps and, and set design is uh, treated as we go through this COVID um, period. You're speaking of COVID. I mean, one, one question I had was just how have you been able to manage your sanity during all this and stay productive? It's been, it's been a wave 
um, in the beginning, I still, I took all our scripts. We only, we only shot the first two episodes and were fully prepped. And then I prepped and read all the scripts for the season. So that took me, I'm very, very slow. So it took me like four weeks. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, I was watching all these TV shows I have not watched, uh, like Ozark and um, Sopranos. Uh, so I was catching up on television. And then, then it started to occur to me that I have not, it was the first time since my junior year of college i've never touched a film camera for you know i've always touched a film camera um almost every week as i mentioned before um so then i i created um these camera operator exercises of jumping ropes they're hit exercises so after two months when i realized we weren't coming back i needed to get back in shape and i was not going to run out past in the french quarter uh, i was too worried that you know it was still too much unknown factors about catching COVID. So down in my parking garage of the, the unit that I'm in, it's, only, it's a very small unit, but it's stuck in the French Quarter. It's super fun uh, to be here, but it's pretty much a ghost town. I, I got two cones and create these hit exercises of squats and push-ups and jumping rope, a series of jumping rope and foot drills, uh, kind of like tennis shuffling and sprints, short sprints. And so since then I've lost like 14 pounds uh, massive stretching, massive core work with abs and uh, resistance uh, bands. So I've been working out a lot in preparation, going back uh, and staying healthy. And I think, uh, you know, just wanting to have a, a clean bill of health when I go back to work. Uh, so for me, losing weight and just really developing uh, your sense of breathing, which is always mandatory. I used to run. Um, uh, even before that, when I was on the show, I'd always go running, and that that kind of was like almost like a text out of itself. So right now, it's all about art and working right. out. That's what I'm doing <laughs> now: watching movies and doing like studying art lectures on YouTube. Uh, and I'm only mostly still stuck in impressionism. Very cool. Hey Abe, I really enjoyed speaking with you today and hearing what you're up to, and um, hope to see you around after this COVID thing. Likewise, my pleasure. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Go For Production. You can listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also listen online at assistantdirecting.com where we have articles, links, and free downloads for people that work in production. When you visit the site, be sure to subscribe to our e-newsletter to stay connected with what we're doing.